0: Thank you so much, choir. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. After all, it's Pentecost Sunday. It's right here before us. And yet, as we declare, today is the day in which we proclaim and celebrate the Holy Spirit. In the same breath, we kind of to ourselves ask, and what exactly is the Holy Spirit? I mean, we've got the Father, right? We've got the Son, and then there's this other third person of the Holy Trinity, which we uniquely profess as Christians. That's the Holy Spirit, and we kind of say, and what do they or it do? Well, that's precisely what I hope that you and I can get our hearts and minds around today. But in essence, what I want you to understand Is that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate sign of freedom for us as Christians? You see, when the Spirit hits, it's something that within us releases, or at least should a sense of anticipation and excitement for something that is to come or in fact is already happening, which is far beyond our own human ability. It, it only must, it only could be God. But yet there's a problem when the spirit hits. That's the title of the sermon in case you haven't got that yet. We don't let the freedom reign. Instead, we cling to control. Justin Tarver, great job on that offertory piece. Every time I feel the spirit, do you know what the next words to that anthem are? I bow and pray. But I think more often the case is, is that we clutch our hands in control. That's what we do when the spirit hits But it's far more beautiful, and I might add, it's in the heart of God that we release control and give it to God in those moments and allow him to do only what he can. Such is the case at Asbury University, a small Wesleyan university in Wilmore, Kentucky. And on February the 13th of this year, revival broke forth in what was otherwise a routine chapel service. Nobody planned it, nobody organized it. It just was a moment in which the worship hour was concluding and yet every soul gathered there said, the spirits hit and we're gonna give it control. So the worship continued, not for one day, Try over two weeks later. And during that time, as word spread across social media and national and international wires, over 50,000 people, many of them college age students, descended upon the small town of Wilmore, Kentucky, only to be a part of that worship service and gather in that chapel and praise God and pray for one another. The chapel looked much like this. There was no special lighting. There was no fog machine. There was no pastor in skinny jeans. And let me say this declaratively, I will never wear skinny jeans for your benefit as well as for mine. And yet... The spirit hit, and the only thing that they could finally conclude is that because the town was literally being overrun, and the school's schedule was completely thrown upside down, they had to determine that on February 23rd, it would be the last and concluding night of the revival. What did that revival mean, though? Many people have weighed in, including one article written by the Time magazine that was given to me by our organist, Nick Bowden. He is what I would say represents a healthy skeptic. Someone like you or I, that when they hear the word revival and Holy Spirit, they kind of go, eh, what, what does that mean? What really happened? So, this is what he writes. It's hard because, by definition, a revival transcends our human understanding and comprehension insofar as it might have direct political or moral import to expect a revival to have a logical behavioral outcome is to reduce its power. Procedure, he writes, easily eclipses Pentecost. In other words... When that spirit hits like it did in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University, the thing that you and I most want to do is try to control the narrative so that you and I can understand what it means or what we believe it should mean. Surely the world should be a different place because of it. Surely the things that are wrong in Washington, D.C. should be right now because of revival. Surely there should be no more uh, poor. Surely there should be no more who are socially oppressed. This is what it means to have the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to have revival. And yet in that same breath, we are exercising a control that does not belong to us over the Holy Spirit. When the spirit hits, as it was told to you by our Jennifer Gendrick in the children's sermon, it is a mighty roaring wind. It bursts into our lives unexpectedly and blows us out of wherever we are, giving us new understanding of life and what it means to follow Jesus, so much so that we might leave a place and dare to speak a universal language to the many people gathered outside of a place of worship, declaring to them that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And yet, here we are still, whether it's about Asbury, Kentucky, or whether it's about the original Pentecost day, we still want to know what does it mean? What does it mean when the spirit hits and what does it mean here and now such is the complaint, the worry of the people of Israel over 5000 years ago numbers 11 24 through 31 talks about a people that are old and older and they are surprised surprised complaining and grumbling as they are wandering in the wilderness recently released from their captivity out of Egypt. You might remember the song when Moses came to Canaan land. What did he say? Let my people go. And Pharaoh did. And the people were released. They walked victoriously through the Red Sea, which God parted. And on the other side, they were once and forevermore free. But there's just this nagging problem that consumes them for so many years. They keep looking back on the days of their slavery longingly, thinking that those were the good old days, when they had it all, when there was no need. And as they look now at their leader, Moses, they think he's not all that. So they come to Moses with all of their various complaints, and this one particularly focuses on provision. They go to Moses and they say, We have no meat. Now, notice they did not say we have no food. God was providing for them manna in the wilderness, but specifically, they wanted meat. And oh, how they had meat in the days of their captivity in Egypt. Why, they had the Nile River that was right beside them. They could eat fish whenever they wanted to. So they go to Moses and they say, if you don't give us meat, it's going to be bad news for you. So Moses going before God, representing so many of the heartfelt sentiments of institutional leaders, says, God, if you don't help me out here, I might as well die. Because whether by physical force or me going crazy, these people are going to kill me. God looks at Moses. And he says, well, Moses, don't worry. The quail that I will provide are on the way. The people will have meat and all that they could ever imagine. But keep in mind, dear Moses, the problem of your current circumstance is not whether or not you have meat or don't. The problem is whether or not these people these people that I have taken out of Egypt, these people that I want to give a land to them, the promised land, their own country forever and evermore, their main gripe is not about meat. It's a question about who truly has control over their spiritual identity. Will it be them or will it be me? So God does something extraordinary. He calls together 70 leaders from the people of Israel, calls them together at the tent of meeting, and there at that precise place, the spirit hits. People gathered there begin to prophesy on a one-time basis. Now, what does it mean that they were prophets on a one-time basis? I don't know. I don't know what they said. I don't know what they did. But here's what I believe, if I'm interpreting Scripture correctly, for that moment in time, it was no longer them who were in control. It was God's Spirit who reigned in their lives and controlled them. And then as the Spirit left, there were but two young men, not called to the tent of meeting, mind you, but still no less who received the Spirit. They went forward into the camp where all the people were gathered, and they continued to prophesy, and they wouldn't quit. These were two men who had surrendered complete control to God. And when such things happen, people, even really good people, can get scared or worried. One of whom was Joshua He was Moses' then aide, but would become the eventual leader of the people of Israel. It was he who would lead the great conquest in the promised land and make the nation secure for this group of people. And he goes to Moses and in effect says, Moses, these two men are out of control. Moses' response is curious and I think telling. Moses in Lament says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, Moses is saying that these two men are not to be sources of concern or criticism. In fact, what they are, are they are two examples, two glimpses into the future of when all of God's people can have the spirit hit in their lives in such a powerful way and finally surrender control to him. It's no longer what they want and how they want it. It's all about living in obedience to where God is leading. And this, of course, points to that day reflected to us in Scripture in Acts chapter 2. In the upper room... There are the disciples of Jesus gathered there, and they, per the instructions of Jesus before his ascension into heaven, have gathered to pray and to wait upon something that is to happen that Jesus promises will change their life forever. And so, in this moment of fervent prayer and unique community, the Spirit hits, A mighty roaring wind blows through this encampment of 12 and 12 people's hearts become ablaze. So much so it looks like they have tongues of flames. They're pouring forward a universal truth that Jesus Christ has a unique plan for your life. They're proclaiming that to all these many thousands gathered upon Jerusalem during that time of Pentecost. People from all over the civilized world of that day. And they're proclaiming in a way uniquely theirs that Jesus Christ has a plan for their lives. And revival breaks forward, particularly as it pertains to the sermon of Peter. Peter, upon concluding his sermon, has, well, an altar call of sorts. And at that time, it says 3,000 of the church's number were added that day. 3,000 people whose lives were forever changed because... The Spirit hit first those that God had called together, and then they, having lost control and given it to God, went forward and proclaimed his message of truth. Not something to be looked back upon nostalgically by the church in the modern day, thinking, boy, those were the good old days. That was the time when God's Spirit fell upon the people freshly, That was the time when people were in obedience to God and did what it wanted to. No, it's not to be for our nostalgia today. It's to be our source of inspiration for how you and I are to become prophets of God. People who I believe know truth, live truth, speak truth. Now, knowing truth is an important endeavor in this day and age in which we live because, quite honestly, there are so many mistruths. You've even heard that media is no longer to be trusted. It's fake news. And truly, we don't know who to believe or why to believe them, but there is one eternal truth, and it's in the person of Jesus, God's Son, who said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes from the Father except through me. That's a freedom. That is something to be embraced. But in that, there's also that all-important notion of loosening your control on what you think and you know, and instead allowing Jesus and the rising tide of that Holy Spirit to set you forth on things that you never before dreamt possible. Prophets or people know truth. Prophets or people also live truth. Now that is an even further explanation of what it means to know truth. To know truth and to simply know it cognitively is not the exercise. To know truth and to practice it actively, experientially in your life is to truly know truth. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Yes, today, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are not a people who just know truth. We are a people who dare to live truth, his truth, which means your confidence is in obedience to Christ. His will is our way. And lastly, we are a people who speak truth. Now, speaking truth means that it's going to require some courage on your part and mine because to speak truth means that you might be a solitary voice amongst so many who aren't just speaking mistruths but moreover are just remaining silent i think that people who speak truth are always going to reflect god's truth in truth and love such says ephesians 4:15 instead speaking the truth in love we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. In all these things, a people that know, a people that live, a people that act in truth, we are further cementing this all-important notion that to embrace these things, we've got to let go of control. And folks, that is more important today than it has ever been before. There's a great misunderstanding about control because so many people don't understand that they're exercising a control to their own detriment you might say that control over a long time practiced incorrectly can kill not just your physical body but moreover your soul your very being control of who you are and what you are isn't the point but giving control to God, allowing his spirit to come onto your life, allowing the spirit to hit and not trying to wrest control back away from it, allowing yourself to be a prophet, unhinged and uncontained by the stereotypes of this world. Whether you're going out into your workplace or your school, or your neighborhood, and you are proclaiming truth that is both known, lived, and spoken. You are a people set free, ready to embrace the full freedom of being his disciple. I think that's very timely in the life of our church. We have a great chapter of the life of our church that's coming up, and Those who have been sitting in these pews for a while have known about it, but I want to make sure everybody knows about it today. And it's in our legacy endowment. This is something that has been in formation ever since the church bought that building that was beside us, once known as BB&T, and then sold to Rayland Construction. And then with those proceeds, our church had the decision of what to do. And I feel like in so many ways, our church said, we're going to let the spirit hit. We're going to not try to control all the outcomes of this, but instead, we're going to give this money to God. This money is not going to be incorporated into our church budget. It's not to pay the salaries of the people that work here. It's not to make sure that the lights are on, but instead, this money is going to be used from generation to generation so that we can continue to let the Spirit hit and guide us so that we are in full obedience to God. And so now, with a $2.2 million endowment, we have declared that 60% of those dividends that will be given to this church on a quarterly basis will be used purely for missional expression, so that people will know that God is love. You see, we too are in partnership with God, trying to find that universal language so that everybody, anybody who hears the collective voice of this church will turn their eyes to Jesus and say, thank you, God, for the hope of your gospel. And then with the 40% remaining, our church is going to use those to create capital campaign fund, So that our building will become an extension continuously of our mission. So that from many years from now, whether it be in this sanctuary or our children's hall or our youth building or our adult education space or our fellowship hall, people that come know that this building reflects God's glory and moreover a place of welcome and community for all. You see, now I can't tell you exactly all how that's going to look. But I don't have to, do I? Nor do you. So here's my invitation instead. In the full freedom of the gospel, let's just let that spirit hit. Let's just let that spirit hit. Let's just let that spirit take control of us. And that anything that we do, everything that we do, whether it's in legacy, endowment, or general budget, or other, is driven by him. And knowing and trusting that in as much as we give control to God and live in anticipation and excitement for only that God can do, we will be embracing that full title and privilege of children of God, and we declare that in Jesus, and if you've heard me say it, say it along with me, the best is yet to come. I believe that today, Pentecost Sunday, and I believe it moving forward, that our church is in a place in which we are going to be a place that declares that the Spirit has hit here, that we are a community of prophets, of people who know truth, who live truth, and who speak truth to the glory of God forever and always, but to give you a practical handle on that so that this can not only become a corporate action, but an individual pursuit, I want to invite you into prayer. And it's written for you at top your order of worship, rather atop your sermon notes on your announcement guide. And the prayer reads as such... God, help me to partner with the power and direction of your spirit so that we can become the reflection of you instead of a replication of ourselves. Now, that's a prayer for anybody and everybody here today. Whether this is a thing, following Jesus is something you're just trying to figure out and understand what it means, or you've been following Jesus for your whole life. That's a prayer that says we're releasing and surrendering control. That's a prayer that says we're living into the anticipation, the excitement that only God's spirit can provide. And it's one that sets us for today so that wherever we go from here, whether it's a family barbecue, whether it's home, whether it's work on Tuesday, we see it with new eyes and imagination. people, who are now partnering with the Holy Spirit, receiving its power and direction so that we no longer are trying to just take control and be replications of ourselves, but instead embracing a far more beautiful pursuit, reflecting the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God wherever we are. If that's your prayer today, and I hope it is, I want to invite you into a time of song and reflection. Someone once said, he who sings prays twice, and I believe that's true. So we have before us a time of invitation hymn. Now, this is a time in which I would say, release control. Let that spirit hit. Let it guide you to express yourself to God in whatever way that might be true for you. If that is singing the hymn, do so. If that is praying that application prayer quietly to yourself, do so. If that is coming forward and asking me to pray for you or asking me to help you find Jesus Christ today, do so. If that's you joining our church and saying, I want to be a part of a community of people that not only know truth but live truth and act truth, you come forward today. We want to make that official. But all together, as a people of God, may we stand and declare in unison that the Holy Spirit is here and we're releasing control. Would you stand and join me in this hymn?